Is immerse, immerse the podcast in We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, McCann, and Bart Plantinga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse, 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 arms part come together here i am part of the blooming aspect a speckle drown in the spectacle three dreamers speculating about their scent migrated to New York after completing a BA in economics at Indiana University, determined to pursue his passions, photography and film, often documenting jazz and modern dance performances. But despite having no formal musical training, he soon found himself inspired by the New York music scene and immersed himself in experimental music, especially loud sound, microtonal work, minimalism and drones, producing works of often epic length. Fifty years later, we can see how influential he's been in these genres with his copious output of records, videos, and films, and having won numerous awards along the way. He has served as director of the Experimental Intermedia Foundation for Avant-Garde Music since 1985 and curates the record label XI. Niblock's films include a series called The Movement of People Working, which features workers at work in mostly rural settings worldwide. Niblock has often collaborated with musicians, which include David First, Lee Rinaldo, Thurston Moore, Susan Stenger, Al Margolis, and David Soldier, as well as with me. Phil just turned 90. He and I first connected in the 1970s when he attended Reese Chatham's presentation of My Spirit Voices in the kitchen of the Broadway Central Hotel. He invited me to perform at his loft in Chinatown, where he had just begun what has become a historic series he came to my home sound studio on West End Avenue and West 77th Street for a session. 
I engineered and removed all the pauses from his sole cello work, making it a drone work. Phil's sunsets shown in our 1987 international TV solstice, and his glittering stream graced our winter solstice celebration 2020. Welcome to Immerse, Phil. Mr. Phil, can you hear me? I can't hear you. Oh, it's because I don't have my headphones on. Well, you have your ears, though. Shit, there must be a reason. I think you were born with ears. Uh, what's that? What? What did you say? What? What? <laughs> I said, I believe you were born with ears and eyeballs <laughs> and other kind of balls. Ears, I didn't have a beard from 82 to 92. I knew you all those years without the beard. There are all those pictures of me looking very neutered, neutered, if not neutered. <laughs> Never. Well, it's good to see you, and uh, I appreciate your... Um... Fucking pink glasses, good God. Well, I should put my glasses on, actually. I can, I can see much less well with my glasses on, although I look more like me. I have this beautiful new mosaic uh, set of Lenny Tristano. Oh, that's all beautiful. I was a great fan of his. I even met him a couple of times. These are all new recordings. Most of them done in his house on 32nd Street. Yeah, he had a, what, a Tanberg or something there that he recorded on? I, I don't know what he had, but he made a lot of recordings there, so... You think he had something like that, or he had an Ampex? Possibly. I, I think he probably got an Ampex at some point. So, anyway, I was I was on Thirty Third Street from during the sixties. I moved here on sixty eight. Moved into that apartment on fifty nine. So, so I was right through the block. Also, uh, Steiner, Ralph Steiner, was in that same block. Really, living a block away. So, Tristano. Has a daughter who was very involved in this issue, who must now be fairly old herself, I would think. So, yeah, I would think so. Maybe eighty. Well, Phil, I hope you don't mind that I'm recording this. But okay with you? Sure. Yeah. Excellent. So what I'm in, what we're talking about is an interview for my book and podcast called Immerse. Well, I'm reading this really great book, by the way. I have to tell you, before we get into this, it's a, it's about immersion actually. It's uh, the Empress Dowager Shishi, who was around from about 1850 to 1909 when she died, and she was the real ruler of, of China uh, most of that time. There were times when she wasn't, like it would be 10, 10 years ago by, and she wasn't the ruler, and everything got completely fucked up. But she was modernizing China, and, and, and did. She was, really, everything was pretty much modernized by the time she died. It was the time when the railroad came in there? The railroad, telegraphs, and, and schools, and she made universities happen. Electric power? And, and, and electric power, and, and especially uh, schools for, for children, you know, so... And so the, the whole population became much more uh, able to read. Most, most people in China couldn't read, I think. Which is difficult enough anyway, because Chinese is really such a, such a shit, because it's all these different languages, which all have different sounds, 
but the same fucking, you know, ideograms, which are totally not in any sort of way to alphabetize them. So you have to, you have to know them by rote. And sometimes they mean different things. And frequently the sounds mean different things. Well, for sure, they're tonal languages. Uh, the yeah. uh, Mandarin, if I recall correctly, has seven tones, and the Cantonese has something like five principal tones. It's interesting, uh, in this book, the uh, podcast series that you're creating a portion for now, Diana Deutsch uh, has a section, and one of the projects that she did, she's a music psychologist, she studied uh, the effect of tonal language on people's ability to hear pitches. And she found that the prevalence of perfect pitch in China in the tonal, more tonal regions corresponded to how many tones they'd have to memorize in order to just speak the language. Well, that's very nice. Was it better than English or worse? Better or worse in what way? I mean, I think that English doesn't have, English has intonation around uh, steady tones. We don't Mm -hmm. really have uh, speaking tones the way Chinese does. It's a really fantastic book. I'm reading it like a, a, a dime novel. It's just, I'm just going right page after page. Who's the author? Zhang Chang. She wrote two other, uh, one, one, one was the biography of China, as far as I can tell. And the other is a biography of Mao, where she rather debunks Mao. And she does the opposite with Xu Qi, who she, she resurrects her, she reforms her image incredibly. She was extremely, extremely positive about Chi Chi. And the rumors were that Chi Chi was a bad egg, but she's trying to circumvent that. So, Was Chi Chi who got dumped by the revolution that followed? It seemed that there was a space in between before, right? I think I, I haven't got to that. It's the very last part of the book, so I had to find out because uh, Sun Yat Sen was, was part of her sphere. Oh, that's right. Well, I guess, and soon to become... Um, died. So I think the revolution probably happened after she died, because it would have been difficult for them to do it, I think, with, with her. She was really, she was just a tough motherfucker. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you for um, mentioning it. I'll, I'll read the book. All the rumors about Chi were, what a bad girl she was. It's, and and uh, it's, it's Zhong Chang, the author is... Is too laudatory, really. So, when was when when did she begin her reign? 1860. She was around like 1850, and she was a concubine with the emperor. And then there was an empress, and eventually they made Shishi a co-empress. So she went from being a concubine to a, to the empress. It's also the time the Germans came and set up breweries. That's uh, Qingdao. Quite the- yeah, quite later, 1880. I just read this stuff. Everybody was trying to get some kind of chunk of China in the book. It's, it was very immersive. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and merciless. One of the things that I either learned in photography, became aware of or something, was about composition and it boils down to the rule of thirds you know the rule of thirds if you take a pick take a piece of uh bond paper and you fold it and into thirds one way and then fold it into thirds the other way you get a square in the center and the idea is that those are the lines which are the strongest lines so that one of the worst things you can do is to put a skyline across the center of the frame or to put a face in 
the center of the frame. And the problem with single lens reflex cameras, which everybody used, was that there's a focusing thing in the center of the frame. And unless you actually think about and pursue changing the frame after you focus, you always end up with a face in the fucking middle of the frame. So I want to tell you, Charlie, that your face is in the middle of the frame right now. Landscape shots is always very important to move the, the center of the frame so it's not the horizon line, so you move it up or down. Like if you're shooting in the water, you don't put the, the horizon line right to the center of the frame. So, And that was the first thing that I taught in a photography class. The only class I really enjoyed teaching was uh, beginning photography. And that lecture about the rule of thirds and staying away from that focusing grid in the middle of the single lens reflex thing was a major part of my uh, lesson to them. And they actually pretty much listened, you know. If they came in with shots that were in the center of the frame, I would berate them so that they, they, they composed much more handily. Than That's a powerful idea. Do you think it has um, its parallel in, uh, in image-based painting? Yes, it's exactly the same. So. Yeah, because I'd read that rule now that you've stated it in relationship to infinite perspective because there's an implied perspective once you once you have a, a frame it's a window into a space that goes infinitely back mm -hmm. it's not just a, a postage stamp on the surface between yeah if you if you look at photographs of famous photographers they they really seem to do that even cartier Bresson is constantly using the frame really well so no wonder he could he could make images with a like a and use the complete frame. He himself seldom cropped a frame from his uh, shots. Not that other editors didn't do that. But. Well, do you think it has to do as well with the uh, the sense of being in the space? Because you that control the access to the space. It's like a, a slice well, of space. I hadn't thought of it that way. I thought of it as a matter of rightness and beauty. Do you recall the first time you had a sense of being immersed in any kind of experience. Doing what again? Sorry. Being immersed. This, well, oh. When was your first sense of immersion? Most of the people I'm interviewing for this are working with sound, and so they talk about things that they experienced, like their first reverberation or a walk with their mother in a tiny alley that echoed. But I'm just wondering, when did you first have a sense of being immersed in a, a location, a space, an experience? Probably it's uh, more immersion in visual things, particularly probably looking at films or, or videos uh, than it was sound. I started to collect uh, records, including Lenny Gerstano on 78s. I still have Lenny Gerstano 78s on the shelf. Uh, and in 1948, it was at that time that several things happened. Uh, tape recording and freed the uh, time constraints of recording on 78s so that the, the three-minute tune was no longer the thing. Unfortunately for Ellington, it lasted, it came so late. And the LP, with a much higher fidelity, meant that people started listening to sound. And so the hi-fi world started really blossoming about 1950-52. I built my first uh, big speaker system with the 15-inch woofer in 1953 which is still operating in the space and thought was the best sounding system still, you know, which, which was a Klipsch design, which Klipsch later disowned. It was a front radiating as well as a rear radiating box, the corner one. So probably if I were describing that, I would think about immersion having to do with listening to sound, but with a higher sound quotient in the 50s in particular, the early 50s. 
My first tape recorder was also 1953, so which is still on the shelf in the other room. So it was a Masco made in Warm Island City, and the flywheel was out of balance, so it had built-in flutter. <laughs> so so weird. That's a lovely story. I suppose you could AI that flutter out. You know, I think at this point, people do things like that. So I don't know how I, I would use the term immersion to even anything that I was doing visually. It probably happened, but I never, I never would think of it that way. So it was hard. It would be hard to go back and reconstruct what I was doing. I think that particularly the beginning phases of doing photography in 1960-61 was a very interesting immersive time. Uh, particularly when I began to print, and the printing was really the the thing because then you really start looking at the image. And I don't see how people, how photographers. Do it anymore when they don't print because I thought that was where the whole thing started. Is to really look at what was happening. Did you ever do a pinhole camera? No, that was never particularly interesting to me. So I think I, I did a couple of things, but not anything great. When you were in the dark room, though, that's a, an amazing experience. Could you describe it for people who maybe have never been in a dark room? Well, it was a pretty simple thing. I mean, you had an enlarger with. A, And I had happened to have an enlarger, which was given to me by my boss, who was an amateur photographer, but no longer doing anything. And he came one day from Arlington, Virginia, and he was stationed by him and brought me a complete darkroom with trays and everything. So it was an old Kodak enlarger with some two very good Kodak lenses, which I still use. I mean, I still have those lenses. They're really super, super good lenses. And uh, I just set up and started to to work. I had a perfect. I, I lived in a very small railroad flat tenement building. Well, it wasn't really tenement; it was slightly above that. But in the the building that I was in was had they finished building it in '41 or '42, and there was a, a problem getting any kind of supplies. So that uh, there were four apartments on each floor, and I was in the one which didn't have an internal bathroom or toilet. I had a toilet in the hall, but no other thing because it was only my toilet. But it was in the hall, so I had to go out. To uh, do certain things in the hallway. Do you remember the address? Two thirty-eight East Thirty-third Street. Yeah, I keep passing it. I think the buildings are still there. I keep every time I go past that in a, in a taxi, I'm trying to look up the street to see if it looks like the same. It's between first and second. Between second and third. Kipps Bay was a huge development, which was the other side of the street. So that between first and second was Kipps Bay, from Thirty-third Street down to about Thirtieth Street was a, a huge, uh, several block. Yeah, it's a huge. Thing. Development, yeah, and fairly early in, a, in those those days. But I had a, a bathtub in the kitchen, so this was perfect because I do all my wash in the bathtub, so I could have several trays with with running water and washing out the thing. And I think it was a building water, so that it didn't run out with a tank. It just kept on going, it was a, so you could get the temperature stable, which is very important. So New York's water at that time was was pretty good, wasn't it? It was very good, yeah. It was very good until not so many years ago. They had several droughts and the reservoirs were drying up, so they had to start pumping in uh, water from the Hudson, which was especially then bad, really bad. So there was a lot of chlorine taste. No, but the water back then was uh, quite 
was delicious. It was a people would bottle it. I remember people would put jugs of water and keep it around. Well, there used to be a, a, a bottling plant that actually bottled and sold New York water. I think so. That's what. <laughs> yeah, Poland Spring, New York Spring. And they also well, there were seltzer companies using uh, you know carbonated uh, New York water. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I used to get seltzer delivered when I um, lived at 365 West End Avenue. You know, mm -hmm. seltzer man would come. I made a shelf uh, in the kitchen, which was a drop-down shelf with a struts that didn't go to the floor. They went back to the wall, so they were triangulated struts. And uh, what the brother Massey boards, and that's what the enlarger was. So I could put it up, and I would. That was almost also my eating place. I would stand up and eat generally. So and the stove was right behind, and then the this kitchen sink was on the other corner next to the bathtub. So I had two two wash water places. I remember always that the connection between what you were shooting from the, from those periods seemed also to be very sonic, not just visual. It was something, it was almost like you were listening to what you were shooting. I mean, when I, the most recent photo you sent to me of, uh, of Ellington um, in that trio recording with- By the way, I'm doing another Zoom session tomorrow with a, led by a guy named Ben Young, who was the WKCR music director for about 12 years or something like that. Now he's, he's at a museum in Massachusetts and it's uh, mostly uh, about jazz stuff, but I think a lot about photography. And it was a, it's a, it's a program on Mingus and Roach. So I'm gonna talk about that session. Oh, which was lovely. a really fantastic session because Mingus was uh, insanely, incessantly pissed. And he couldn't take it out on Alan Bates, the, who I think is the name of the, of the uh, producer, or Ellington. And so he, he just spent hours bitching at Max, who was his ally, of course, and, you know, saying things like, these, these drummers have to take a solo every fucking side, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> As if he solo uh, every fucking side. Oh, it was, and, and Ellington was very nervous. I mean, he was, uh, it doesn't show to look at him, but it, the playing was very nervous. If you listen to the playing, you can tell he was, he was on edge all the time. Because Mingus was behind him and just bitching and bitching and bitching, except when they were actually playing a tune. The only time he shut up. And he was drinking milk. He had cartons of milk around. And he had a milk allergy. Probably the reason that the, what he died from was a, was a lactose intolerance uh, something, you know, in his body. And there was even studies of, of it's common with black people. So they, there were studies in, in prisons. of the guys who drank the most milk of the black prisoners were the guys who was always in the most serious crimes, like assault and murder and things like that. So. Wow, what a statistic. <laughs> well, so I think that was the reason that, that Mingus was constantly uh, berating people and being very aggressive. It was the milk. Maybe he was a junkie to his bad vibes from being milk allergic, you know. It yeah, did, yeah, did yeah. have a chemical effect on him. I know people, for example, um, who are diabetic and shooting insulin, uh, and then they love to drink. And they love to, you know, they can't stop drinking and they push themselves often into diabetic comas. You know, because it is something in their body that is, it's like the, the no-no area and they want to go there. Drinking alcohol or drinking just... Uh, booze, yeah, alcohol, yeah. Okay, because Jasper is uh, in some sort of a pre-diabetic situation. He drinks a lot of water. He would drink quarts of water a day. Does it help he, him? He's carrying... Well, it doesn't, it's, it's, isn't it helping, but he's always thirsty. That makes sense, sure. But he doesn't drink booze. He, he's, he's, 
ever, really. He doesn't like anything. He'll drink a little bit of hard cider occasionally. Very, very I was thinking of a, a guy I know who's a, who has to take insulin all the time, but he's always hiding booze in his clothes and in his travel gear, and he's just constantly drinking alcohol, and he's not supposed to, and it has a particular yeah. effect like the milk on a lactose intolerant person. Could, could well be, yeah. You've drifted back to the center of the frame, by the way. Is this better? No, you the other way. Thank you. That way is, yeah, that's that's just about perfect. Right okay, great. Well, I have to work on that. I still can't get over the pink glasses, but otherwise. Composition. I take them off there. I don't want you to barf. I won't barf, but I just uh, uh, finished breakfast and was washing the dishes at four o'clock, so I sat back down. And, well, hey, I remember. Uh, I, I just go back to immersion, but uh, yeah. probably that's. In, in the dark room, doing the stuff of setting up, cropping the photograph in the enlarger, and then watching it come up in the developer. Actually, the developer I think was in the kitchen sink, and then the washing was in the in the bathtub. So I had probably two two trays. They were small trays because I was only doing eight by tens. So I could have a developer and a thick side by side and a fairly wide sink. Watching it come up uh, in the developer. You remember Lona Foot? Yes, very well. Yeah. So Lona was a particularly horrible photographer. She didn't uh, crop well at all. She didn't compose well, and she was completely fucked up in the dark room. No matter what what you told her about leaving the print in the in the developer for one and a half minutes, which was a sacred rule, she would always pull it. As when she saw the image coming up, she would pull it and put it in the fix. And her images were always completely bland and characterless, contrastless because of that. And so her prints were just horrible. And yet she was photographing people who were really great. She was photographing a lot of jazz people. She was quite close to Eddie Blackwell, for instance, and Dewey Redman and Reggie Workman. I mean, Workman and Redman were here in the loft at some point, coming to visit uh, Lona. That's beautiful. <laughs> I yep. knew all these guys in one way, one way or another over that time. Yeah. So that's another thing, of course, I had to berate people in the, in the classroom because we had a fairly good dark room set up and people, there were 10 or 15 stations that people could work in and then tried to get them to make it always a minute and a half to have some kind of a, of a watch or something to be able to time stuff. So I think I probably set a timer for that, but I'm not sure of that. I think I probably just used a watch or something. But that was an immersive experience, that whole process. I struck you dumb. I was completely struck dumb by Aaliyah. I was there in the dark room, man. <laughs> no, very suggestible. So <laughs> I was just seeing the image coming, and uh, it was just it was so vivid. <laughs> yeah, there was a dark room here, uh, right behind me in the ante room. So I had put a big black curtain over the uh, door between the ante room and the loft, and uh, curtains also around the door from the kitchen. So I could I could uh, have a very dark room, and then the bathroom was uh, was the wet part. So I would just go, it's only five feet from the enlarger into the soup. <laughs> and again, there was a uh, shower, which was a, a, a small, shallow tub uh, as well. So that was a perfect way to, to wash prints. I mean, I washed prints there. I washed prints also in the, in the bathroom sink. I think the second wash was 
there, I always had two washes. I had washed when they first came out of the thing, where there might be several prints uh, in there, and then I would go into a final wash and wash them for half an hour or whatever it was that you needed a washing pool. And uh, there were very, very few ever spots that would turn brown as it got older. So if you had a spot, like if you dropped a little bit of fix on a, on a print, not knowing it and didn't get washed, it would turn out to be a big brown spot. So I remember there was a photograph of my grandfather. There was a big brown spot on on that print that I had of him. And of course, brown is my favorite color, as you can see. I mean, it's a great color for wool. <laughs> mm. Well, so, jumping ahead, a couple of things come to mind that seem to grow from all of this. One is, I think you, you may recall that I was your editor when you asked me to remove all the breaths from a performance. Both I, I got to do a trombone performance and a um, cello performance. And I it was your audio engineer. There was the recording of the individual tones that were used as right. the material for the piece. Right. And so I remembered you were making a continuous that's, sound. That's, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. The person who, who did that a lot was uh, Susan Stenger. And she would sit for hours and, and you know, spot tape. Well, you had never done it. You asked me if it could be done. I had the studio. You came up and hung out. And that was something you wanted to do. I, it was just a... It was in a... Amazing experience for me because it was a chance to hang out and do something that That's was completely different from anything I'd, I'd done. I'd done the opposite. I had doing voice editing, uh, take all the little breaths and lip pops and so forth and assembled tracks that were made of nothing but the non-words. <laughs> so it, it, it was a skill that I had highly developed, but in the reverse. Aha. Uh -huh. So you spliced back all the outtakes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I removed all the words. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Interesting. I made a number of loops from them. They're, they're in my archive. I remember that that hearing about that, but whether I ever heard those tunes. Do you still have those? Yeah. Those tunes? Yeah, the, I, I actually have to resuscitate. I also did a lot of, I built electronic modules and did a lot of continuous and very loud sound pieces in that studio, mm -hmm. which I think you heard. And none of those, the, they, I sort of got into chanting at a certain point and left all of that studio-based stuff behind. And But that's all sitting there. Ready, ready to live again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I pretty much have done all the. I've taken all the all the tapes of, of all the pieces and had them converted to files by a very interesting guy here, uh, Gary, Gary Rinfuss is his name. So if you ever need anything transferred, he has virtually all the machines you could think of. I, I do everything, uh, you know, full bandwidth. <laughs> Mm -hmm. rather, rather use space and see a list of things and have it in three places. When I get stuff from uh, Renfuss, I have him make me a 24-bit uh, 44.1 copy and a 32-bit uh, 96K copy. Excellent. So you get both both of them when, when he gives you back the stuff, if you ask for that. Say 44.1 and uh, 32... I think it's 32. Maybe it's only 24.96, but it's... Good. Well, thank you. I will uh, definitely uh, yeah. keep, keep in touch with this. There came a time, though, when you 
began doing projection and loud sound in your loft. Mm -hmm. And you recall when you first did that, was, was it a solstice event or was it just something you did for yourself first? But when did you start playing loud sound with projection? I think I was doing that pretty much very soon after I came here, but not for public events. The first public events, I came here in 68. The first public events were in 73, which I, I think you were part of, but I can't, I have to go back and look and see. There yeah, were seven composers. Shadowy was part of that. Reese was also. Right. It was Reese, I think, that main. introduced us or Tom Johnson. I don't think Tom was there because he wasn't really active as a composer at the time. He was a, a, the critic. Well, he was always writing. You know, he was a student of Morton Feldman. He went to Yale and he yeah, studied yeah, yeah. with Feldman, but that, he would have done that before that time because he came to New York after he graduated yeah. Yale. He wasn't part of those seven. That stuff is uh, all on the EI website, by the way, so you can go there and see everyone who's been here in the concert. Oh, I'd love to see that. From 73 until about 2010 or something like that. And then, and then all the individual files are still on the website too. So. Yeah, I wish the kitchen had done that. I, I was the, one of their very first, I, and uh, Nietzsche and I, uh, in the old Broadway Central. That's mm -hmm. where you first heard my work. I was doing the piece for uh, with, with brass and saw, Garden Mooma played saw, and the soundtrack that I built called Spirit Voices. It was mm -hmm. a dramatic work about the sky journey, uh, underwater journey, and uh -huh. subterranean journey. So the, that, that kind of immersivity, I think, was the pleasure of just having the sound, a sound field. And from <laughs> That was my perspective, because I was doing the same thing. I had, remember I had six Jack Weisberg horns in the corner of my apartment on West End Avenue, and neighbors that were constantly complaining. Mm -hmm. So I, I moved in there in 68. Uh, I remember that I uh, had found these cassettes. I was recording stuff, professional Walkman, or even with the uh, TDM five or whatever it was. And I recorded the clarinet piece and a, I think a cello piece of you. And That's right. You did my... Uh, in the park. On the, right. If you have the cello piece, I'd love to have the recording. I have your clarinet piece. It's just spectacular, the recording you did. If you have anything that you did with that I can outdoors. Anything else. I don't know where that stuff is. No, so. Well, should it appear? I played a few years ago. You, you came by and so I just put on the clarinet piece and played it yes and you were you were incensed you were just in oh, you know, somebody's done exactly what i've done somebody stole your shit <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> well it's like the old <laughs> hey someone's someone's drugged my dope <laughs> that's it oh that was it <laughs> so i got a little bit of immersion anyway so well but wasn't that immersive I mean, from the point that you had loud sound, don't you think you've been playing with immersion as a way of life? I mean, isn't that how every performance you do is from about that time? It did bring up the, the, the hi-fi stuff. So that was a continuation of the interest in hi-fi. And in, I mean, I'm, I'm actually primarily interested in reproduced sound. I mean, all the pieces are essentially recorded and then played back. And so a typical concert of mine is always sound in the space coming from speakers. And so that's really the medium that I'm working with, our sound system always. So, okay, so that's immersion. That I've immersed my whole career in making that stuff for sound systems. Well, it's a form of printing, isn't it? And not unlike what you did in the darkroom. Well, it, it, yes, I, I'd have to agree. I wouldn't think of it that way, but yeah. 
So well, even film is, is that, and it's reproducing the event. So all the films of people working, for instance, is just that. It's just recording that material and very uneventfully recording it because I don't juxtapose material. I don't re-edit. I don't move things around. There's only a very, very few shots in the whole 30 hours of film that I shot that the movement of people working, which is in a different place than it was from the original chronology. One thing that happened with the, the films is I would number each role as I shot it in the field. And then the, the film went to Kodak to be processed. Uh, it was printed by J&D, my lab. But uh, if, if the guy put the roles in order, so he picked them up in order, it would be chronological. But if he put them in a random order, it would be totally not chronological. So you would have a shot and if it, the shot was continued in a different role, that maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, this, that same thing would come up again. The same place would go up again. And so the stuff was all randomized. And most of them were randomized, actually. So, and all that, all that stuff. So that you can't see what happened at the very beginning of the, of the trip. You saw whatever, 100 feet came, got processed first in, in the lineup. Because once he was in the darkroom, he couldn't see the numbers. So he had to... He had to stack them in the right order to get them right. And why they didn't do that, I, I don't know. It should have been automatic, but they were stupid. I think that you would, you've got the right word. You yourself are a great listener and an enjoyer of recordings and books and uh, films. I think that that's part of what your work is about, that you've created something in the medium. I'm curious, when you've made something and do you find pleasure in what you've created? Is it Does it scratch your itch? I mean, what's your relationship to what it is that you've made? I'm just curious. I've never asked you before. I think I'm very interested in having people hear it more than I am myself. I almost never sit down and play a piece of mine just to listen to it. I always do it for an audience. So, so nobody wants to listen to it, which is frequently the case. <clears throat> I never hear the stuff. And so one of the things about the December 21st concert of playing six hours is that I hear I hear the stuff. I may not listen listen very concentratedly, but I hear the stuff going through for at least six hours. Also, one thing that's interesting about that is that there's so much new material in the past few years that something like at least 70% of what I played on last December 21st is stuff that I've never played before on a six-hour concert. They were all new versions, and I had to do a lot of editing to get rid of stuff that also hadn't been played, but I couldn't play everything. So, well, Did you enjoy uh, the editing process, or were you just trying to get through it? Very uh, sort of agonizing because I went through and I, I uh, picked out tunes to play and didn't play a lot of stuff that I would like to have played. And when I put them into, I used Toast 10 to play the pieces because I can put six hours of stuff in and it tells me exactly the time. And Toast 11 and beyond that, don't do that. They give you a CD worth and they switch you another CD. So uh, when I took my first list and put it in, there were 10 hours of music. And so I had four more hours to cut, but I already cut to the bone of the stuff that I really wanted to play. So I told I told Staley that next year I have to do 12 hours instead of six. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I hope you do. Well, I'm a great fan of your process and of your company and of, uh, of the works itself. I've always thought that it was right. It spoke to me from some very basic and completely um, authentic 
space. Mm-hmm. You know, so ever since I've known you, all of your work has that quality for me. It's like, it's, what do you say? It's right in the bag. You know, I think you, uh, you do it right, and I appreciate that. I'm happy that you'd have this discussion with me. I'll keep you posted on the project. We're going to launch. There's two years of, of interviews. There's uh, 50 interviews. And uh, uh, the book itself is the transcriptions of the interviews plus articles that tie it together. And it's also a timeline. It's my timeline. So you and I intersect not only now, but back in the uh, 60s. Uh, what was it? You said uh, 73 I performed your place, but you were at the kitchen before that. I think it was, you met me uh, maybe a year or so before that when Reese presented me a niche. That I'll just check, but I think it's 72 that we were at Broadway Central. You said you were thinking of doing a series at your place. I remember it very well. I'm thinking of doing some concerts in my loft. I wonder if you'd like to come up with some, such a low-key and pleasant introduction. Totally, you couldn't believe it. Because I mean, the piece that you just heard is a piece with a lot of screaming and wild shit in there. And the place we were was filled with the stench of old blood because Nietzsche had crucified cows in that space just a day or so before. You know, the, the reason that I started doing the series here was because of Mitch. He had asked the people at the, the Mercer Art Center to do a concert and they asked the Basokas if they could use their space, which was called the kitchen because it was a former kitchen of the restaurant. And they said yes. And then it was the night before my next concert there. And he spilled blood all over the floor so they it was impossible to do a concert it was just horrible stink. and so we did we decided to do the concert here where i had a sound system that was reasonably good and so we we bust people down here we even got a, a Volkswagen bus to pick people up there bring them down so i think most of them just walked in a little bit and so that was the first concert here it was mine and then later that year which is probably 73 maybe 72 later that year i decided to do the the first series here with seven composers because they had the sound system and so i was interested because that that was something that people didn't have they didn't have they no have. i know that because i had a sound system too we were amongst the few who really did yeah and which which got better within a year or so even that year yeah. was, i think got i'm really better. curious about one thing i played you any number of pieces that were electronically created with particularly ic circuits and things up at my place and uh things with different frequencies and beats and stuff. And and you had uh, Radio Shack uh, sound generators and I think an HP generator at your place, but I never heard pieces that you did with it. I think you said that Behrman came in and did a piece and, uh, uh, but that you had all these sound generators, but you you weren't interested in making pieces from electronic sources. Is that true? It wasn't. Uh, I used it a couple of times, I think along with some feedback. I don't really remember specifically that I ever used them or the or the pieces I use them for are essentially missing I think from the repertoire not to go wanted to go see it because they were in a, all, all in a box they were all five inch reels because I had an Uber and it was a five inch reel you know machine so I sure constantly doing stuff on five inch reels so those early pieces were in that and I never really transferred them I wasn't particularly interested anyway and four I had five of those machines and four of them I was given by Anaya Lockwood. So I only had one that I bought. Yeah, Anaya Lockwood and I have worked together since that time also. She was one of the first artists I put on Audiographics label. And she's the announcer on this uh, inter- Immerse series. She's mm. she's threaded through my life for some reason. She's just been the yeah. nearest and dearest. 
Well, uh, oh, one, one, I wanted to ask you, do you still have uh, tapes and stuff in Vermont? Yes, I certainly I still have an archive there. Well, I, I've been doing them as they've been re-released by labels. A lot, some of my best ones got, you know, are out, but so much stuff that still has to be done, and I'd like to move it along because I'm afraid it will fall apart. Fortunately, in a, a cold basement, so that helps. A huge amount of them uh, from, what, 78 to 86 uh, have to be baked. Yeah. Because they have that uh, variable-length polymers that uh, absorb water. Yeah, what's so it, the he, Ampex 202s? And, uh, he does make everything. Uh, all everything. Of, back uh, Scotch and Ampex were all, yeah. all did the same thing. So. The bad binding on the uh, particles. It wasn't the bice, it was the glue, I think. The glue, isn't that the binding, though, would hold the particles onto the tape? Yeah, yeah, okay. The tape backing. The tape uh, base it, and then there's the, the glue. And then there's Sometime when I'm down at your place, I have a recording that I wanted to share with you. I did a project on old trains. I got a hold of some tapes that had been digitized that had been recorded on wire recorders. And as a result, the dynamic range is far greater than tape. They're from 38. Oh, really? And the guy who did it had a sense of drama. And my favorite tape is one that he sat at a, a location where the train would come up a hill and then it would take a turn and disappear down the hill. So it had a long approach and then it would quickly disappear. And he did a number of recordings of that location. He's as close as you could imagine to, I guess you'd call him an audiographer or... Who was that? Some, I, I don't know. The, I never knew the guy's name because uh, they came to me through uh, a third party. Ah. And I, I use them in my installation for the mm -hmm. um, uh, Altoona Railroaders Museum. But the tapes made on the, the wire recorder were just sensational. That's interesting. I never heard that it kept uh, rotating so that the phasing would change all the time. It had greater dynamic range because of its uh, physical chemistry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, shall we quit? I think I have to have a piece of pie now. Well, enjoy your pie. Uh, and uh, I'll try. a long-distance hug, and thank you for yeah. this wonderful chat. And not as a spoiler, but you will see in the introduction to my piece how I got into immersivity, and I'll leave that for you to read. I think okay, you'll find it fascinating. So good, take good. care, man. Yeah. To be continued. Cut us off. Cut us off. Come on. Hurry up. Cut us off. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse. 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 empty shell to fall back into the sea. Yes, I, I shall now pop out of this bubble and uh, yep. Yep. see you later. See you later.